Thank you for sharing that song tonight. What a what a um, a hymn to start our evening service with tonight. Let us just bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer, the privilege of coming before you with open hearts and minds. We thank you for this time that we can gather around your word again. We can consider the subject of mission, of outreach, of who we are individually, of why we're here, of your purpose for us. Lord, help us to, to be awake, be attentive tonight for what you would have for us. Bless our brother as he shares with us. Lord, I ask a special blessing on him. Give him courage, strength, and most of all, Lord, give him your spirit to speak those things that would benefit us and benefit your kingdom. Thank you again for each student here, each staff member, each child. Thank you for your care to each one, and thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll give our time to Brother Randy. Well, good evening to each one again. I greet you in Jesus' name. It's a blessing to be back here again this evening. You sisters had the opportunity this afternoon, I believe, to listen to one of the passions and burdens of my wife's, and now this evening you're going to hear one of my burdens. So we think about mission work. First night we talked about motivation. The motivation not necessarily only being the needs around us, but the fact that it is a command of Jesus Christ to go. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Last night, looked at the missionary, the person, preparation, willingness, yieldedness. Tonight, I titled this message, The Manual. And if you remember the first night I mentioned this, and I said you were going to have to allow me to preach the message to, uh, before you could understand what, what I meant by this. And I'm going, to, I'm going to begin by going over quickly what I believe is a history of missions in the Mennonite church. And this is very simple and very quick. So if you've done an in-depth study, uh, Brother Harry... <laughs> Please don't criticize this very simple edition of the history of missions in the Anabaptist churches. This is after Anabaptism came to America. There was a time where, where a lot of uh, foreign missions uh, was non-existent in the early days of Anabaptism. And then Anabaptists started to venture into mission work. There was awakening, I believe, to the Great Commission, revival and mission outreach, and it took them into other countries. And that was good, a very good thing, I believe, for the church. But they found when you went into other countries that not everything worked like it does in your home community. In other words, you're entering into another culture, and what fit in your home community and culture didn't necessarily fit in other countries and other cultures. And they would get to places, and I'm putting this in my words, and rather simply, they'd get to places where you couldn't necessarily buy nice pants and shirts like we do here. Uh, and so they started doing other things. And they had to make a decision. Anybody that sat in, in Brother Harry's class on uh, communication or personal evangelism and discipleship, what comes first, authority or behavior? Anybody remember? Authority. authority. That's right. Scripture comes first. And so they, had, they were emphasizing that, and I think that was right. But what I believe happened, as they were doing that, folks back home looking on, maybe the children of the missionaries, 
started to look at that and say, well, if they can do that and be Christians, then why are, all, why are some of all these things really important anyway? And the missions got the, the bad uh, report of being the instigator and starting to lose some of the traditions that the Anabaptists held. And there were some serious-minded traditional Mennonites that said, if this is what missions, especially foreign missions, are going to do and are going to lead us to, then it's dangerous, and we should not be involved in that. And so there was a pullback in mission work and emphasizing missions. And there was a time... If you were involved in that kind of foreign mission work, you kind of had a label as probably more progressive or a little more liberal. But I'm thankful today that we have started to venture back into mission work pretty heavily. It's an Anabaptist group, and we are in other countries uh, very significantly anymore. And my father-in-law, you students probably won't recognize him or the name necessarily, but some of you teachers do. My father-in-law told me one time, he said, you, you are a blessed group. You, your young people are very blessed. They have tremendous opportunity to get involved in mission. When I was young, we did not have that kind of opportunity. But then he told me what he really wanted to tell me, and that is, with opportunity comes responsibility and accountability. We've ventured back into mission work, but some of the same problems are coming back. My grandfather was a very mission-minded man. And now that I know what I know, I wish I would have uh, mined the depths of some of his thought and philosophy on missions before it was too late and before he died. But it, I didn't really understand uh, the depth of his passion for missions and for getting, getting involved in people and needs until it was too late. Very mission-minded man. And uh, in a group like this, you kind of got to be careful what kind of illustrations you use, but he was involved in a mission in Crockett, Kentucky. And probably some of you know what mission that is and are aware of it. Uh, he was there for a couple years and got involved with the people there. And there was a man that joined the church, who came to church, became a member of the church, and he drove an old red beater of a car. Very old, very rusty, and very red. And the sending mission told my grandfather, if he wants to be a member of that church, you must tell him he's got to paint that car. Can't have a red car. And my grandfather told the mission board, he said, well, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I just cannot tell that poor man that he has to paint that old rusty car. He said, if you want something done, maybe you should offer to paint it yourself or something like that. But he said, I just cannot ask him to paint that old rusty red car. And I sit back and I look at that and I think, my grandfather had it right. Good for him. At the same time, the sending mission had a, had a standard in their church where all cars are to be black. And can you imagine what would happen if they have a mission outreach in Kentucky and they have a member that has a red car and now everybody's looking on and they're saying, oh, but there... They have members that have red cars, so why does it matter? 
I still think my grandfather had it right. But you understand what's happening. I was in India. I was there with a young man. He was, uh, I don't even know what group he was with. But when, you, when I was in India, I understood that the practice was when you, before you came into church, Outside the door was a shoe rack, and you took off your shoes and put them on the shoe rack before you walked into church. And so we did. Nobody came into church with their shoes on. And there was a young man there that we were there with that intensely loved this tradition. He said, when I go home, I will not wear shoes in the church. Won't do it. I like this. This is the way everybody should do it. And I can imagine him going back to his home church, taking off his shoes and being the only one. There was a mission that for the sake of convenience allowed a flowing veil at their mission all the other, the sending mission, the supporting mission, that was not an accepted practice in their congregation. But for the sake of the mission and for some things involved, and this was all within the states, this wasn't in another country, they said, we will allow at this mission for the hanging veil to be worn. And people would leave the sending churches, they would go and they would wear a hanging veil and they would come back home and they would keep wearing their hanging veil and they would not change their membership back. And it created a problem. And if you get involved in missions, you will face this. Because authority comes first. And so my burden tonight is twofold. Number one that we can enter into missions. We can go into other countries. We can be involved. We can watch what happens there. We can, we can promote the authority of Scripture and how that applies into the life. And we can watch the behavior follow along. And we can, at the same time, embrace what our churches are, are holding to and for without trying to diminish without trying to say that's not important. And number two, that we can unite ourselves in Christian growth together without questioning their sincerity or our church's tradition. And so I've... I've come up with a little diagram to help me through this message. And I want to give credit to where credit is due. Uh, years ago, a number of years ago, I was at a, a service and heard a man by the name of George Pinkham giving a message. And some of you may know him. I don't know. I haven't met him since. But he used, he used a diagram that years later I tried to bring to memory. And I whatever part of this is his, I want him to have credit for. But I probably added some things to it. And I don't even think his message was along these lines. But I am using part of what I remember him drawing. And so it goes something like this. And I don't know how well you can, you're going to be able to see these words on either side here. You can, you can try to draw them. We'll, we'll explain as we go through. You have a circle there in the center, and that circle is representing the Bible. Okay, and the Bible is what? We have the Bible, but what is it? What makes Bible the authority? Okay, so number one, the Bible is, and that, that, word, that is the Word of God right there. That's what's listed there, the Word of God. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And so this Bible, this scripture, this authority is not the word of man. It is, is the word of God. And so there's nothing that's going to change it. And I can't take this Bible into any culture and change it to meet the culture. This word of God will stand alone in authority because it's the word of God. And when I say I can't take it into culture, change it. I meant you can't change the Bible. Because it is the authority of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts, <clears throat> excuse me, and intents of the heart. 1 Peter 1.23 Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I think it's somewhere in Psalms. I, I didn't look this verse up. Uh, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's established. Forever. The Bible is the word of God. To there, this is the living word. And in parenthesis there is Jesus. Jesus Christ being the living word. Jesus Christ representing, exemplifying the Word of God in human flesh, uh, the Word of God incarnate. John 1, 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, by his life, confirming the Word, John, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Speaking of the testimony, the life of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. 1 John 2, 6, end of the verse. We should walk even as he walked. Jesus Christ, the living word, the word in flesh. And in the Holy Spirit, and I have there inspired word. And turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and I want to read a verse or two here, and I want you to think about when I'm reading the perfect, perfect harmony in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in complete, in absolute unity. John chapter 16, verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come... He will guide you into all truth. For he, the Spirit, shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he, the Spirit, shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify, he, the Spirit, shall glorify me, Jesus Christ, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, Christ. Therefore said I that he, the Spirit, will take of mine, Christ, and show it unto you. And so the Spirit will always, always confirm the word of God. Never anything else. 
And so you can, you can mark it down. You can be assured that when someone says to you, the Spirit told me, and it goes contrary to the Holy Scripture, it is not the Holy Spirit of God. Cannot be. It says he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he hears, that will he speak. He will always, the Holy Spirit will always confirm the Word of God. And so when you have the Word of of God, the authoritative word of God, and you have the confirming life of Jesus Christ, and the guiding of the Holy Spirit is what gives this its authority. And that's why you can take this word into any culture. I wonder if you could take, you think about your culture, think about your home church, wherever that is, think about your culture there, think about your church's standard, what they ask, what they require, how you practice together uh, scripture principles. Think about that and then ask yourself, could you take that? into any culture. I wonder what your answer to that would be. We'll keep going. And maybe we'll answer that question. The first part of this word of God that I want to think about is a term called biblical principles. And biblical principles are simply things that the Bible specifically speaks about that we believe are principles that guide our life. Uh, Specific things. So I'm going to pause here for just a moment. and, and, And can someone or can you list some what you believe to be biblical principles? I want you to think here a little bit. Biblical principles, what would be some? Absolutes. Very good. Stewardship of material resources. Other ones. Non-resistance. What was that? Love. Love. Prayer. Prayer. I listed some out here. Some of them already mentioned. Biblical principles that the Bible specifically speaks to. And every one of those can be taken into, they're cross-cultural. It's the word of God. You can talk about salvation, moral issues, separation, nonconformity, what the Bible says about marriage, what the Bible says about uh, the veiling, holy living, submission, non-resistance, honoring God, stewardship of material possessions, I drew a line around all that, and I put churches all around that, and that is to represent the what I'm calling the Pilgrim Church. Now, you've got to be careful there because there's such a thing as the Pilgrim Conference these days, and I'm not, not saying that. I'm talking about the church that, that embraces the authority of the Word of God and says that we are Bible-believing Christians. If the Bible is, is speaking to it, that's what we want to practice for our life, and they are working uh, as best as they can to say, we want to live our lives by the 
uh, biblical principles of the word of God. And if your church is a church like that, then it is on. It's one of those churches. Embracing the whole truth of Scripture. And I want you to notice that I said, well, maybe I didn't say, I want you to know that they are embracing Scripture as much as they understand. <laughs> okay, because there are people that start studying Scripture and they, these things start getting revealed and they, they look at it and they say, oh, yes, well, that's what I want to do. And so they start doing that. And they, there could be something else that they're totally missing that they haven't understood yet. And in case you think we got all this perfect, <laughs> I wonder if we couldn't do better on that stewardship of material possessions. Do you think we fully understand that? I wonder sometimes. But we try. As much as we understand, we are applying this to our lives. Ah. Before I move on, applying it to our lives. That means that we are taking these biblical principles and we are making practical applications. Practical applications are how we take biblical principles and apply them to our lives. So I'll open it up again. What could be some practical applications to Scripture? How do we take the biblical principles and practically apply them? What are, what are some things? I'll help you out. You might find it amusing as I do, and I'm not trying to make light of this, but our church has had a standard for years that a beard was unacceptable. And there's plenty of churches around that say it's unacceptable not to wear a beard. So it's a practical application, I suppose, of Scripture. I talked about the churches that, the sending churches from my grandfather to that mission had, had a specific car color in mind, their parking lot. Car's color is totally black. Um, I would imagine most of yours is somewhat different than that. You apply it differently. Um, plain suit is a practical application of scripture. And I think we can unashamedly call it that. It is a practical application of scripture. Some churches have chosen for the purpose of separation, I suppose, not to use the internet, not to use the radio. Specifying for the purpose of modesty and nonconformity, uh, how ladies are to make and to wear their dresses. Some churches say no musical instruments, some have. Some specify specific types of veilings. The biblical principle is the veiling. The practical application is the type of. And so then a natural question comes up. So if these are practical application to scripture and they're not part of the biblical principles, the authority of the word of God, then are they important? And I want to try to convince you tonight that if you take away your church's practical application to scripture, then you're in part taking away some of the essence of 
brotherhood and submission. See, if there's, if there's no practiced unity, then every one of these biblical principles each person looks at and they apply them however they want to apply them, probably in an honest way, but it'll go many different ways. And I think the result will lead to individualism and chaos. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I believe this is the way it has to work. The church taking an honest look at, uh, at, at Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and saying this is what the Scripture is teaching, and how can we best apply these Scriptures to our lives to live honestly before God? And not everyone comes to the same position, but everyone takes that honest look and says, this is how we want to apply it. How does this apply to evangelism? Number one. Number one, we need in our evangelism to teach that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. I, I think that we can unashamedly call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. And if there's any biblical principle of scripture, there is nothing to be ashamed about. Because that is God's word, and that is authority, and whatever culture you enter into, it is something that can be taught. Now, there's a problem that we don't even have time to go into and address tonight, and that's the fact that Scripture is not in every language yet, I don't believe. And so you have problems there. But I'm talking about where Scripture is available, it can be taken in, it can be taught. Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Teach the scriptures on the inspired word of God. Number two, teach biblical principles clearly. Our country... I believe has become spiritually bankrupt by calling biblical principles merely practical application or suggestions. And by doing that, obedience becomes an option. It's not necessary. If you call a biblical principle something that is uh, just a suggestion, then obedience becomes an option. You may or you may not. And a lot of people have emphasized, emphasized bringing souls into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's evangelism, and that, that, that's an appropriate emphasis. But the emphasis of discipleship is somewhat lost. 
And in doing that, maybe we're guilty of blurring the line a little bit and maybe not emphasizing the biblical principles, the discipleship as we ought. And maybe too many biblical principles are getting pushed out. And salvation gets emphasized. Salvation is what is necessary. Salvation. And once you're saved, you can live however you want to live. I believe we need to teach biblical principles clearly. The authority. problem is, some folks have reacted against that, and they put everything inside, and they run the risk of teaching practical application as biblical principles. The way we apply biblical principles, they teach as part of the authority of the Word of God, and that is incorrect. That's a reaction. And reactions never have good results. About 13 years ago, I walked into our living room, and there sat my one- or two-year-old son playing with a utility knife. And what do you do? You're a parent, and there sits your child, and he's playing with a utility knife. Ah! <laughs> Is that produce the intended result. Probably by that time, blood's flowing. No. You very calmly walk in, and you take the knife, and everything is fine. Reactions never produce the intended result. So we must teach we need to differentiate between this is what you need to do to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to, to live out the principles of Scripture. This is what it looks like. This is what you, Scripture says. Differentiate between that and this is the way we as a congregation have decided to apply these biblical principles to our lives. I had a, a little bit of an unnerving situation the other just last Sunday, I guess it was. Um, years ago, I, when I was growing up, every once in a while, the bishop would get up and he would read our discipline. And you could count on about once a year. At some time, he would get up and he would read it. And over the years, we kind of discontinued that. Um, and somebody said here not so long ago, you know, maybe people don't even know what, what it says too much anymore. Maybe we should start that tradition of reading it in our churches publicly again. And so I was tasked with that responsibility on a Sunday morning. And I got to church, and there was a couple that came in from the community. First time they had ever been visiting the church. They had uh, had some contact with some Anabaptist people, and they were looking at churches and they found this church and they came and there they were and I'm struggling here is this the morning to do this is it not what are these people going to think I leaned over and I asked the minister I said do you still would you still like me to do this this morning with the visitors here we can wait to another time oh he said it'll be fine do it and so I got up and I said it this way Still, now you can, you, you're welcome to tell me it was the wrong thing to do. I don't care. But I uh, said I recognize this morning that there's never a good time to do this. I recognize uh, there's visitors here, and you're very welcome here. But I want you to know that when I'm reading this, this is not what I think the Scripture is telling you to do. This is simply what we have agreed together. This is our brotherhood agreement, what we have agreed together to 
do as a congregation to apply these principles. And I read through parts of it. And they didn't get up and leave, and I think it worked out. But I think we need to, I think we need to be careful how we come across with that when we're teaching biblical principles that we don't react and do it that way. Number three, then, we need to teach the practicality of Scripture. And we can find ways to make Scripture, scripture applicable to them. If you're involved in a prison uh, Bible study, it could be any Bible study, I'm just choosing prison. Uh, it can be a Bible study, you can go into someone's home and have a Bible study uh, with them. Very good uh, method of evangelism and discipleship is having Bible studies. Um, always enjoyed doing it at prison, but you know one of, the, one of the greatest mistakes I think we make in doing that is thinking that we have to do all the expounding. You'll be amazed. I was getting ready to go to prison one night, and the person I was going in with was supposed to be having the leading out in the Bible study. At the last minute, he called me, and he said, uh, I traded with somebody I can't go in tonight, and so I called the other person, and, well, I'm not prepared to lead out. And I said, well, you know, the only thing I've been studying right now is my message for Sunday morning, which is... Uh, the doctrine of non-resistance, and they said, well, that'll be great. Teach that. Uh, okay. And so I went in, and I read some of the verses that we reference about non-resistance, and I stopped, and I said, I'm going to open it up. What do you think these verses are saying? And I was amazed. I didn't have to teach. <laughs> they knew exactly what those verses were saying and what they meant and what it means to love and not respond in a wrong way. We had a great discussion, very good Bible study, not necessarily because I let out, but because I gave them an opportunity to speak. And what they were doing was making the Bible applicable to them. And we can teach the practicality of Scripture. I think we should do that. One other time, I was headed into prison. I was to lead out, and on the way in, I just felt like I should go to Romans chapter 12 and just work my way through that passage, and so I did. And just verse by verse, we read it, opened it up. What do, how do these verses apply in a practical way to your Christian life? And in the process of doing that, then you can share with them, well, one of the ways we make this practical is by doing this. That's a non-confrontational way to tell them how we practice the authority of Scripture in our lives. But we can teach the practicality of Scripture. Number four, never apologize for what scriptures teach. I think I said that. It may be a very delicate subject, such as divorce and remarriage. Never have to apologize for what the scripture teaches. We can show them what the Bible says about it and work toward how it can be applied in their lives. How does these things apply to evangelism? Number five. Embrace our brotherhoods and their applications. And you ask, why do you say that? I say it for this reason. I think when, when, when we are firmly behind and supporting our brotherhoods and their application of scripture. We are creating an environment 
that is secure and safe. You know, which president was it a couple years ago that was running his candidacy on the slogan, something about change? And being, being ready for a change, well, you know, everybody grabbed onto that and supported it. We want change. They always, says we, they always say we want change, but no, actually what they really want is something that is stable and secure, not moving, not always fluid. And they will not be searching for the chaos of individualism, but the stability that we have. You know, there's security in the fact that there has been a long history, a long history of the Anabaptists seeking to apply scriptures to their lives in a very practical way. Long history of that, and there's security there because there is a consistency and a constancy there that brings stability and security. I received this. This is the Five Lows Ministry news, <coughs> newsletter. I don't know how many of you get this. And there, there was, uh, in 2018, there was an article written that I very, very much appreciate. And I'd like to give the man credit that wrote it, but I don't know who it is because the initials at the end simply say A-E. So maybe you know who it is. I don't know. Um, but that's his initials. But the study, it's a fairly long article, it's about a study of the house church movements. And, and he, he goes into talking about some of the house church movements, he's, he's specifically talking about in other countries, maybe even where uh, because of persecution, because of uh, not being allowed to have a public church setting, they meet in houses, and so he's not really condemning that. That's not the way it's written. It's just, it's, it's, it's looking at the at the problems that these house churches have that's being created, uh, sometimes unintentionally. So not really, really being critical, but this is some of what he sees in those movements that he feels like are problems. Now I'm just going to read little excerpts out of what he, writ, he has written. And uh, in, in the defining the church life, there's about four different areas, doctrinal position, membership, leadership, and standards. Just a couple things about each one of them. He says, when what is considered to be one's church is not organized, it is almost impossible to define the doctrinal foundation of that meeting. When the doctrinal foundation is weak, everything is weak. And so what he is saying is, is these, these, these movements are so fluid, and there's so many individuals coming in and out. They don't have that long history that Anabaptists have. Okay, and so there's a lot of different individuals, and they're very fluid, and so there's, there's never a good, a good, solid doctrinal foundation built, because as one starts to get built, and a number of people leave and more come in, and you're constantly trying to build that, so it's weak. And he's saying when that's weak, everything is weak. He says this about membership. With no defined membership, the best you can have is an inner circle and the rest who represent varying degrees of commitment. And so you don't have membership. You don't have the opportunity to establish membership because here again it's very fluid. And so you somehow have an inner circle and then you have the rest. And so there's no defined membership. And they reorganize very rapidly. Leadership. Without a unified doctrinal position and without defined membership, there is no defined method of determining who the leader is. In other words, leadership roles, he's saying, are very vague. People are coming, people are going, and who is actually the leader? Who do you look to to finally make a decision? 
And there's no, there's no membership there. And so you're, you're grasping for a straw and you put somebody in and you don't really know them. Maybe they made a good leader, maybe they didn't. And he's talking about the weakness of this. And in standards, without leadership and defined membership, agreement on the fine points of practice is hard to achieve. Much time is lost in arguments over application, hard feelings result, and people regroup, setting kingdom growth back several years. When there's no defined membership, when the leadership is hard to come by, there's no way of, there's no way of determining a good, solid way that we're going to practice together biblical principles. And so there's a weakness there. And then he concludes it by saying this. The church needs evangelists, men gifted at turning people to the Lord. However, in some parts of the world, including China, people are already turning to the Lord at an electrifying rate. Needed now are teachers and men who are gifted at organization, lest what is being gained today be lost tomorrow. <laughs> Go teach. So I hope tonight you can understand what my burden for this message is. And that is that we can separate that clearly in our minds and be okay with supporting, uh, maintaining our church's position, what they've agreed on, agreed on together to apply biblical principles to our life. We can, we can uh, embrace that, support that, and yet enter into missions and be okay with those seekers who are not practicing like I am and grow together with them, disciple them, and yet realize the stability of the years that we've had as Anabaptists and love that. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again tonight and we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word that is authority, your word that can go into any culture that can change lives in any part of the world. And I pray tonight that you would give us a vision to take your word and to evangelize with it and teach clearly the principles of your word. And I pray that we could embrace our churches and what they've agreed on together, uh, committed together to stand for, and love that stability and security that is there, and use that as something strong and something to... Uh, be a springboard for any evangelistic effort. So I thank you for this time again tonight and bless each one of these students and teachers in the coming days. Surround us with your presence and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.